Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. We're talking about book bans this hour. And the act of trying to get a book off a library shelf is nothing new. But the increase in demands to ban them, that is new. The fight over education continues to be a winning political issue, at least for conservative candidates. But the political success of lobbying to remove books from libraries and recommended reading lists doesn't address whether these bans protect our children or if they're really a tax on people cloaked as a tax on stories. It's a big topic. And here to help us understand is Sonia Douglas, professor of education leadership at Columbia University. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having me, Anna. For as long as we've been writing books for the masses, people have been trying to ban them. Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass was threatened with banning by Boston's district attorney. Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, Alice in Wonderland, Lady Chatterley's Lover, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. But these last two years have felt different. And I'm hoping you can help us understand why. Well, I would, um, well, first, thanks again for having me here today. Um, You know, the resurgence of book bans is really troubling. Um, I think it reflects a broader history of the struggle over questions of identity um, and the rights of parents um, when it comes to what type of information and content their children have access to. So I think, again, this is part of a longer tradition around a struggle over which political, um, actually which cultural and educational values um, are being advanced. But I think in this moment, again, the widening political polarization that's happening, um, strong feelings about what the identity of this country is and how it should be represented, whether it's in books or literature, um, has made this really, um, I think, a, a, a sad um, and challenging um, moment in in American history. And it seems like traditionally, or at least the way I understand it, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that book bans used to be more individual. It's one person trying to ban one book. Now we frequently see one person submitting a ban for 30, 40, even 100 books. That also feels different. Yeah, I think in addition to political polarization, um, the fact that we have access to social media uh, and digital platforms um, and which mobilize these campaigns in ways that, you know, we haven't had experienced in the past. So these platforms have certainly um, empowered, I think, advocates and organizers, um, mostly conservative, who have, want, who have been exposed, one, to the content of these books and um, are able to, to ban them quickly and more efficiently. The kinds of books being banned also seem somewhat different. You know, today they seem to center around gender identity and sexuality, which are major flashpoints in the culture war fights we've seen over the last two years. But when you go back to, say, the 50s and the 60s, um, you know, I found a book called The Rabbit's Wedding, which was a picture book for children, and it was banned in certain states because it was thought to promote racial integration. Is it fair to say that like book bans are kind of a reflection of the flashpoints in our culture at any given moment? Absolutely. I think um, it reflects the concerns that people have about, again, the future of where America is going. Um, it reflects the changing demographics um, and politics that we're experiencing, certainly after having the first African-American president, <laughs> followed by um, former President Trump, which had a very different, again, view of what this country represents. 
um, has fueled, I would say, a lot of the political activity and participation that has led to the banning of books. So I, I think this is one strand of, again, a much larger political agenda, um, which unfortunately has been effective, but I think at the same time mobilizes those who support freedom of speech and expression uh, to stand up and make sure that we're supporting um, access to um, all types of books and all types of content. We also want to hear from all of you this hour. Are you somebody who has seen a book ban uh, go through in your local school district here? Are you supportive of restricting certain books? And you want to tell us why? We'd love to hear your thoughts on book bans this hour. Give us a call at 614-292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. I want to talk about the difference between schools and public libraries because they are they are two different institutions with two sort of different purposes and what I mean by that is school libraries have to consider the age appropriateness of the materials and not just for like reading comprehension because with adults I think society has agreed to a certain extent to let people choose what they want to read but with schools there is this idea of what is appropriate at what age. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, that's a it's a it's a great point, and I think one that you know we should be able to discuss um, as adults and in community with children to again understand what is appropriate today. Um, again, given social media and access to a lot of information, I think young people do have access to things that um, we would like to protect them from, but really ensuring that we're um, exposing them to content that may be difficult, but that we're prepared to kind of walk them through, um, I think is important. And so professional educators are trained to do that. Um, that is part of what they do. And so I think there should be less concern about that. Um, the question becomes who has the right over what is taught in schools? Is it parents or teachers? Many of them wear both hats. And so I think it's a time for us to think about how we work together on behalf of children. Yeah, because US school boards have broad discretion when it comes to the books in their school libraries, the curriculums that are taught. I I think that's why school board meetings have become battlegrounds for these book bans, for mask mandates, for concerns about whether CRT is being taught in our schools and all of that kind of, it all happens at the school board, right? It does. Um, and, you know, school boards have been an interesting place with the rise of mayoral control over the last few decades um, and the fact that many school boards are no longer democratically elected, but maybe appointed, I think also changes the dynamic around who serves on school boards um, and for what and to what end. So we have seen a lot of activity at the school boards. Um, Anne Lobu, who is a doctoral student at Teachers College, is doing work on this and really, you know, trying to understand better who are the members of school boards today and what types of agenda are they advancing. And we see, again, all of these um, factors coming together in ways that um, have brought us to what many of are describing as the culture wars in education. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Hilliard later. Uh, that's a community here in central Ohio. And they had some pretty contentious meetings over particular book bans. Uh, but I want to talk more broadly, more nationally with you. And do you see themes or trends in either states where we're seeing a lot of book bans or topics or maybe books in particular that are getting flagged over and over again? Well, the books that are being flagged are typically written by authors of color or um, authors who are who identify as LGBTQ or taking up 
topics, um, stories um, that share some of those experience from a perspective that maybe some don't want their children to have to be exposed to. Um, I think one of the good things that are happening at the state level is that there, there is a move to advance culturally relevant education. Um, there have been efforts to um, support ethnic studies curriculum, whether it's Black studies, it's like we're doing in New York City, um, but really wanting to provide a corrective to what has been um, a Eurocentric curriculum in many places. So again, I think this is a large part of a struggle that we're continuing to have in this country based on the changing demographics and the changing politics. And, you know, I think it's a good thing as long as we keep it constructive um, and make sure that um, everyone is speaking up and um, that there's not only one set of parents um, whose voices are being heard, but that um, those who also support diversity, equity, and inclusion um, are being heard as well. Yeah, I'm a... I'm a big fan of fantasy. And one of the things I've really loved is seeing, it, I would say in the last five or six years, there's been a real expansion in the diversity of authors writing fantasy. So I think of like Children of Blood and Bone, or I guess um, Octavia Butler, I think has been around for a while there. But there's a lot of really great authors that are getting play in a way they haven't gotten before. And I struggle to see where that's a bad thing, at least in the adult space. Well, you know, and, and when it comes to equity <laughs> and issues of social justice, when groups really do um, um, advance, right, or are able to enjoy progress, there typically is going to be some backlash for those who want things to stay the way that they've always been. So um, I agree with you. I think it's wonderful, I think, to have a diversity of perspectives, um, stories, authors, and content that better reflects the country that we have today is really important, and especially for our young people who reflect probably one of the most diverse cohorts um, in, in America's history. So that's a positive thing, and um, I hope that we continue to support that. Yeah, and I, I do think it's what's so difficult about this conversation is I think I think sometimes we need to separate it out. So there's a conversation about adult books in public libraries, and then there's the conversation about children's books in school libraries. And I feel like sometimes we're we're mixing that all together and we probably really need to to segregate those conversations and have them because they are two does that make sense that they're just like two different kinds of conversations? Like what should adults have access to in the population generally and what should kids have access to in school? Yeah. No, I agree. I think they're two different conversations. I think if the aim is to really have those conversations in a way that help increase our understanding, um, that's that that's a great thing and that's what we should do. I think unfortunately much of what we're hearing is around, again, a politics of division. Um, and it's been effective in that way, but I'm glad that again, stories like this and the coverage that you're doing helps us to recognize what's at stake um, and to have these conversations in ways that help increase our understanding and um, support freedom of expression. I think it's really important, whether for children or adults. <laughs> and. You know, I think sometimes, too, one of the interesting things I've seen is in preparing for this episode is I've gone and I've watched some videos of school board meetings and read some articles about them. And a lot of times you'll see the parents, they get up and they'll read a passage or a paragraph or they'll point to a page in a book and they pull it out and they're like, this is inappropriate. This shouldn't be in school. And the passages are, I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times it ends up being a description of a sex scene. We'll just put it that way. And I always, I go back and forth on it because I think how children learn about sex is like parents have profoundly different views about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But 
I guess the way I look at it, and I, I would love to get your perspective, is, you know, if three pages in a 300-page book have some sort of physical intimacy, I don't know that that's a pornographic book. I think that's a book with maybe a spicy scene, whereas you might see a movie that's two hours long, and one minute of the movie has, you know, the characters undressing. I don't think that makes it a pornographic movie. But if you were to just play that scene, sure, it would look really bad. Does that make sense? It does, you know, and it can be jarring to hear, right? Um, (laughs) Parents kind of, you know, reading some of the passages that they're concerned about. But I think this is where parents also, you know, have to use their own agency in terms of what their children have access to. It doesn't mean that no one should have access. Um, And it's part of, I think, a call to community education. We're focused quite a bit on children and what they're learning. But I think also as adults, we have to uh, be committed to lifelong learning um, and being able to um, to, you know, engage information in ways that um, allow us to, I guess, I guess, demonstrate a little bit of maturity in dealing with some sensitive topics. And so I think it's important that we model that for our children um, and not banning, again, a complete book based on um, two pages of text. That was Sonia Douglas, a professor of education leadership at Columbia University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we're talking with the Columbus Library about book bans and the role of parents in guiding their children's reading. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking about book bans this hour, and now we're going to narrow our focus down to Ohio. Joining me is Donna Zeiderweg, Chief Community Engagement Officer with the Columbus Metropolitan Library, and she also works with the Ohio Library Council, which is the statewide professional association representing the interests of Ohio public libraries. Welcome, Donna. Thank you for having me. And Casey Meehan, Program Director for the Freedom to Read at PEN America. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we want you to join the conversation. Do you have, have you experienced a book ban push in your school district? Are you someone who has real concerns about what your children have access to in a school or public library? We want to hear from you and you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. And I want to start our conversation with Ed, who lives in Baltimore, Ohio. Welcome to All Sides. Hello. Um, I am not in favor of banning books at all. Um, history is, I grew up Catholic, and the Catholic Church banned or tried to ban a lot of books. And because they were on that um, uh, 
uh, that path, uh, a lot of the uh, secular people kind of glommed onto them. And um, you think like things like Catcher in the Rye, which we think of as a uh, classic novel right now. Um, but when you look at what's going on or what went on, so many people were looking at banning books, but they didn't look at what was going on on the movie screen at that time. I mean, yes, we had the, uh, uh, the limits that they couldn't go through, but how many movies do you remember that had implied rape scenes? I'm thinking like Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart and other ones like that. Uh, they didn't show anything, but they were implied. But you know, why weren't they? Um, why weren't they banned? Uh, even though a lot of things on the books were implied, uh, and I've read so many things lately uh, that um, I have um, I've read, and I'm thinking like, why was this book banned? I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, but there are certain people that just have an idea in their mind that anything that they don't agree with must be banned. And that's. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that Ed is making. And it's one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, Donna, as somebody who works with the Columbus Library, is there's this idea that like a book or a movie or a piece of art, if it's wrong for me and my children, it should be wrong for everyone. Yeah, I think that is uh, is often the philosophy that people have, and uh, we really, as a public library, feel like um, our value and one of the things that we really stand for is providing access, and we believe that you have the right to make that decision for yourself and for your child, but that you shouldn't make the decision for for someone else's child or for the community at large, and so we really understand that you might not want that particular book to be in your home or you wouldn't want your child to have the experience of reading that book, but that doesn't mean we would want to remove it for, from our shelves for access for the entire community. And Casey, when it comes to reading of a book and finding it objectionable, before the pandemic, most library book challenges were from specific parents regarding specific books. But in 2022, I found this study that said 90% of book challenges targeted multiple titles, like sometimes an attempt to remove 100 titles or more. And that stat comes from the American Library Association. And so that feels like I'm not saying people don't read 100 books. Like I am a bibliophile. I read a lot of books every year. But making a suggestion to remove 100 books maybe feels like you haven't read them all. Yeah, and I think, you know, that also demonstrates and Pan American ALA and many others have tracked the fact that this is a, this is truly a coordinated effort. Um, to your point, we used to see, you know, individual parents object, um, you know, have specific or individuals in general have specific objections to a specific title. But now we are seeing long lists that are being challenged across public libraries and public schools. Um, and those lists are shared from state to state, district to district, where we see the same set of books being challenged over and over again. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing is, is, is definitely a, a more coordinated uh, campaign to remove certain types of books from public libraries and public school libraries. Donna, I want to give people some basic information because I never like to assume what people do or don't know. How does Columbus Libraries decide which books 
get on their shelves in the first place? So not even like a book ban, but like how do we get a book onto the shelf? Right. Uh, Well, we have a materials collection policy, all libraries do, and that policy really outlines how we think about the selection of the books that go on our shelf. And then from there, we actually narrow it down and we have a little bit more of a scope for each part of our collection. So the guardrails, if you will, for what we would like to see in our collection and what might be out of the out of bounds of our collection, given the fact that we're a public library. And then from there, we have selectors, professional selectors who uh, spend their time selecting the materials based upon that material selection policy and the scope that we've outlined. And then when a person comes to check out a book, librarians are not there to ask whether the person should be reading a specific story. Like they're not there to make any commentary on the books you're checking out. That's right. Correct. Uh, And with even with children, correct? Like if a teenager comes in to check out a book, the the responsibility there is on the parent. That's correct. That's correct. Has the Columbus Library ever banned a book, like taking it off the shelves? We have never uh, we have never taken a book off the shelf based upon a challenge from an individual or group. In fact, I don't believe that's ever happened. We've never banned a book from public libraries in Ohio. Um, so no. Have you ever reclassified a book, though? Said, okay, maybe this belongs in a different section. Yes, actually, we reclassified a book last year um, because we it was it was one that was asked to be reconsidered. And we took a look at it, and it was originally classified in the children's area. The audience that it was identified was really kind of the sort of in between uh, what we might think of uh, having on the shelves in the children's area versus our teen area, and we moved the book to the teen area. So that has happened, yes. Casey, I want to ask you a a broader question. Do you at Pan America, do you see themes in – the authors or the books or the kinds of material that we're seeing nominated for these book bans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what we have seen is a really sustained focus on removing uh, certain books for young, for young people um, that overwhelmingly include um, characters of color, um, LGBTQ plus characters, um, books that talk about race and racism, and increasingly books that uh, include instances of violence, and and this also extends to sexual assault and sexual abuse, um, as well as any book that has, in the broadest sense, like a sexual experience within that book, um, even if it was, you know, kind of intentionally written for like a younger audience. Um, so we see, you know, we kind of at this point, you know, we're about two and a half years into what we have really called a book banning campaign. Um, and we do see the content continue to broaden. Um, so in the first year, it was a bit more narrow in its attacks. But now we see, you know, books being challenged that are quite sweeping in, in their content areas. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the kinds of books that are accessible in a public library and the kinds of books that are accessible in a school library. Because as I said earlier, I do think those are two different questions, right? We have this idea that adults sort of get to make their own choices, right? Like you can read what you want to read, sort of buyer beware. But when it comes to children, there are legitimate concerns, not only about like whether they can comprehend the material, but also what they should be exposed to and when. And I think this is such a difficult conversation. And Don, I'd love to get your perspective from the Columbus Library 
you know, how do we make those broad strokes calls, especially when it comes to the young adult or YA category? Well, when when you sign up for a library card, when an adult signs a child up for a library card, they are really making the determination to give access to that child, um, to whatever materials they that that child picks out, assuming that that adult is monitor and we assume that the adult is monitoring that child if they desire so and are being selective about what that child reads. So for us, we have, as I said, we we look at the breadth of what we want to have available for the community. We do that based upon a lot of different criteria and really believe that even though a book is on our shelf, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right book for everyone. And uh, we rely on the a parent or the adult in that child's life to make that determination if they would not like that child to read the book. So some schools in central Ohio, so Hilliard is one example I'm thinking of, has a policy where a parent can set a book like as not check outable. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the right word is, right? They can say, my kid can't check out the following books. And they can put parameters on that. Does Columbus offer anything like that? Or is it just the onus is on the parent to be monitoring what the kid is taking out? The onus is on the parent. And Casey, you know, I think when we look at this conversation around schools in particular, right, we see these very contentious fights at school boards. And, you know, I want to say to a certain extent, like, I think it's fair to have concerns about the, say, explicit sexual content in a book. Or, you know, uh, one of the books that gets brought up a lot is 13 Reasons Why. It also became a television series. It deals with suicide. And, you know, even if it doesn't deal with sex, that's a very heavy topic. Some of these books have assault, abuse, abuse of a parent, alcoholism, drug problems. Like, it, it is a very complicated conversation when it comes to what do I want my child exposed to? Yeah, I mean, schools are certainly different. And I think there has always been a place for parents to um, play a really essential role in their in their students' education. Um, and I will say, you know, part of part of what we see in terms of um, efforts to challenge and remove certain types of books is is also sowing a bit like a heightened distrust in our public institutions and in our public schools and our public libraries. And we have, you know, in every same as a public library, there are professionally trained librarians and teachers that are, you know, trained in, and well placed to adjudicate um, the appropriateness of certain library materials in a, in a school's collection. Um, and they also serve a diversity of families and students. So what may be, you know, right for one student and family may not be right for another. And that's, that's the process, you know, it's a similar process in um, public schools as well. So, you know, I think what's, again, what's happening is um, many librarians can speak to this too, is that parents used to come in and have conversations with them and like, you know, have engage on like why a book may may or may not be appropriate. But we've just seen a complete escalation where we have um, school boards deciding, you know, what material should be in school and district libraries. We have state legislation that's influencing the types of libraries or the types of material that is, um, you know, accessible in, in school libraries and increasingly public libraries. So, you know, we just, again, see kind of this escalation and overreach of um, a very 
vocal minority who's having outsized influence on what access looks like for for all students and all you know community members in a public library. The Cincinnati Enquirer here in Ohio had a really interesting article the other week about who was doing book banning in southwestern Ohio. And what they found was that it was a handful of people that were submitting the majority of these bans. And I've also seen that sort of nationally, that um, that these bans are a handful of parents doing 60, 70, 80 percent. Is that sort of what we see nationally, Casey? Yeah, that's right. There was another, you know, a national article from the Washington Post that pointed to 11 individuals who are behind, um, you know, like over 70% of all book bans. So we do see the way in which uh, specific individual actors or groups, you know, and individuals that are affiliated with these groups that have, you know, kind of an agenda to remove certain types of books from school and public libraries, you know, they are having a real outsized influence on, you know, again, what's accessible for, for all. Donna, I also want to talk about library displays because there have been challenges here in Ohio to library displays and also library programs, which is where you might invite an author to come and speak. How do you guys navigate those issues? Because it's not just the book on the shelf. Sometimes it's the author themselves in person in one of your libraries. Right. Well, if you, I mean, we do have an opportunity to ask the library to review programs and uh, as as well as books. So we have a formal process that we uh, go through in order to review that uh, suggestion by a, a customer. And so if someone has uh, an objection to a book or a program or a display, there is a way that they can formalize that objection and we go through a process then to respond to that and to, to take a look at their concern and, um, and really uh, determine, you know, based upon a set of criteria, whether or not that should continue. I want to take a call from Julianne in Reynoldsburg. Welcome to All Sides. Hi. Uh, my point is that kids will find the books, even if they're banned. One child will have it and they will pass it along. I spent much of my high school being questioned about the books I read in the front office. Uh, they were pro buck, and I will admit that one of them had very adult themes of a pavilion of women, but these were all approved by my parents. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting conversation. So children often read up, right? Especially if they are bookish children. Uh, and sometimes what is appropriate for one 14-year-old to be reading is maybe not great for another 14-year-old to be reading. I think that's very true, but I think that's also just underscores the point that you know your child best. You know your um, what level your child is reading at, what what level of curiosity they have and interest that they have. How would uh, a, a librarian, someone uh, uh, in a library, understand wh where your, your child is at at that level? And so I think it just really underscores the point that you know, hopefully, uh, your child best and that you are the, the best person then to make the decision about whether or not that is an appropriate level for them to be reading at. And I also think that librarians can be a partner in this because 
librarians know the books. They are great at recommending books to you. If you're like, hey, in the most benign sense, like, I really love book X, they'll be like, well, you should read book Y. But I also think, right, you can talk to uh, a librarian and say, hey, my daughter is 11. This is what she's into. This is what she's read. What do you think fits within that scope? Absolutely. We, uh, uh, our our librarians love to read uh, and love to recommend books. And there is a great desire to talk about those books and what is appropriate for that child or what their interests are and where that might lead as far as suggestions about books that they they might read or enjoy. So I think the opportunity to come into the library and actually have a conversation with uh, a librarian and really discuss what your child likes to read and to to really engage with our staff around that is a really great opportunity that I think can lead to some uh, wonderful selections for for your child. And you can be candid. You could be like, hey, does this have a sex scene? Right. Ask the right questions. They will tell you. Yes. Yeah. Does this does this talk about also as much as people hate Goodreads sometimes, and I have a love-hate relationship with Goodreads, they will spoil the entire book for you. And you can also search an author in like a Google Google search, right? Like the name of the book, Trigger Warning. And it'll give you the whole list of anything that might possibly be objectionable in a book. I think that's right. There's so much uh, wealth of information now that you can find on different books, uh, reviews uh, on books. And so I think there's lots of ways to determine if a book is, and obviously we also encourage the parents to read it themselves uh, and have a conversation because I do think that there's many times where there are some heavy topics that you may not want your child necessarily to avoid, but having read the book and having a conversation about that is a really great opportunity for you to really explore a topic that is probably important for your child to understand. We also want to hear from you this hour if you have an opinion about book bans or maybe you've seen one unfold in your local school district. You can give us a call at 614-292-8513. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about how parents and libraries can partner together to shape a child's reading world. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about book bans this hour and how we can help shape our children's reading lives. Still with us are Donna Zyderwig, Chief Community Engagement Officer with the Columbus Metropolitan Library, and Casey Meehan, Program Director for the Freedom to Read at PEN America. So a lot of the book bans, the majority of them, at least according to 
your website, Casey, seem to fall in what we call the young adult, which is the YA category. And this is generally books for children about 13 to 18. And I think part of the reason that gets problematic is because there's a huge difference in maturity from 13 to 18. But I think it's also because as we get older, we give our children, as our children get older, rather, we give them more freedom. We give them more privacy. We're slowly letting go and preparing them for adulthood. And I think just that feels uncomfortable and it becomes a real question of how much privacy do we give them about their reading lives as they become full-fledged adults. Does that make sense, Casey? Of course, and I think it's a great question. I mean, students have students have a lot of agency and 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 young people have, you know, agency in what they can and want to be reading. Um and I think that's something we should also you know, really protect here. It's that, you know, parents, of course, always have a voice, but I can certainly remember reading, you know, just books on my own that I identified for myself when I was growing up. Um, and I think that's part of our, you know, emotional and developmental learning process. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, when we look at our data over the last two years, we see almost 60% of all books banned were young adult books. Um, and I agree with you that it's often because these books introduced topics that may make people feel a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, and that's always been a place for YA literature. So young adult literature, you know, has always sort of introduced um, themes of, you know, sex and sexuality and, um, you know, really help um, deliver, you know, complicated and difficult concepts in a way that is um, accessible to young people and helps them, you know, understand themselves in the world around them. So I think that's a, that is a really essential um, point in this too is just ensuring that students and young people, you know, have access to books. Donna, I also have a particular bone to pick with YA fantasy. <laughs> so I, I love fantasy, but first person fast paced fantasy with the female main character has been shoved. I think often incorrectly into young adult because there's this idea that like that kind of writing is somehow immature and it belongs in YA, whereas like Tolkien is mature adult fantasy. And I, I hate that take for the record. Mm -hmm. But there's all these books, like particularly I'm thinking of like Sarah Mass's books uh, where the hero might be 17 or 18. But if you made her 25, literally nothing about the book changes. Like nothing about the book changes other than it's now an adult book versus a teen book. And I think that's not libraries. I think that's actually a slightly misogynistic take by the book publishing industry as a sure. whole. Yeah, I think uh, I think you might be onto something there. It's funny. We just had this conversation the other day because we were talking about the book The Fourth Wing, which oh, is very, yeah. very popular. I'm actually listening it's to the second It's kind of classified as one. N.A., right? Well, um, yeah. So we were talking about it, and uh, we because we happened to have the author coming um, coming up in April, yeah, which we're really excited about. And uh, the person, one of the people that I was talking to, said, "Well, that's it's a YA book." And I said, "Actually, that it is not. Um, it is uh, considered an adult. It's actually a, sort of a new subgenre called romanticy, which is really interesting. Romantic but fantasy, romantic, for those who don't know. yeah, romantic fantasy. <laughs> uh, but I think it's so interesting because." That was the the observation of someone that it was YA when it really isn't. And uh, I think that is 
a way that those books have been classified or sort of sold uh, in uh, in the past. And hopefully that's changing now with some of the new uh, material that's coming out. Yeah, for a hot second, there was this category called new adult or NA, and yeah. then it disappeared. And I think that's a shame because I think 18 to 25 is a category of reader, like people going off to college, first jobs, having new experiences. And we kind of eliminated that. And so the characters got like shoved younger into YA or made older into adult. Right. And look, no offense to the book publishing (laughs) industry, but I have a real bone to pick with it. Uh, Because that, because Sarah Mass, I think, fits that category perfectly, too. I think her books started out YA, but I think a lot of them have now been reclassified as adult well, I think it's really interesting because it really uh, begs uh, the conversation about la- just labeling in general, because I think when you label, whether you, you label something young adult or, or adult, it, it, um, it suggests uh, who should be reading that book. And the new adult, also a scenario where you think, okay, well, you know, maybe as a you know, a 50 year old, maybe I don't want to read that book because it's a certain geared towards a certain age range. So I think the the more that we can let people make their own decisions um, and not necessarily guide them in any particular direction, the the I think just the better people will, you know, enjoy that experience in those books. And I do want to be clear, like, I think, you know, Casey, one of the things I I think trips people up sometimes is you can absolutely have adult books with child protagonists. There can be, I think of like Emma Donahue's Room. Right. That is the book told from the perspective of a very young boy who is trapped with his mother. Uh, I guess I can spoil it. It's a pretty old book. Yeah. (laughs) She is being held by this sadistic man. He's kept her locked up for years. She, like, conceived this child, and it's told from the perspective of the child who has never been outside. It's an amazing book. Even though it's a child protagonist, it's not a kid book. Does that make sense? Like, sometimes I think parents get really upset. They're like, oh, that had a teen protagonist. And I'm like, yeah, that was an adult book. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mostly just would echo what Donna shared. I mean, there are, right, publishing houses and bookstores and libraries and schools. Like, there, you know, there's a mix of these, like, sensible systems that already exist that can help individuals kind of navigate what's most appropriate and relevant to them. Um, you know, every rating system is going to slant, you know, it's going to be its own subjective system. That's just what happens. So, you know, Pen America is also you know, very weary against this idea of like additional book ratings that um, could like lead PG-13 to restrictions. Like PG-13, R, Exactly. X. And like, you know, exactly. Labeling books as, you know, sexually explicit or, you know, providing any sort of like vague stamp on what this book is or is not. I mean, I think, you know, the beauty of books is that they offer, you know, it's, it's, you can, one, you can close them and put them away if it's not for you. And, um, you know, they're also, there's just so many, there's so many books. And I think the idea here is to be, um, you know, to have spaces like public libraries and like public schools where people can freely access a diversity of books across ages, across topics, across content areas, identities, and histories. Um, And that I think is what's, you know, really at stake in this movement. The sensible systems will be here, you know, after, but I think what we're watching, you know, kind of currently is, is an escalation beyond those like very sensible uh, ways of sort of navigating books that are relevant for students and young people. I want to take a call from Fred in Columbus. Welcome to All Sides. Hi. 
Hi. So I'm calling, I'm calling because, honestly, I don't believe any book should be banned, period. I mean, regardless of how good or bad it is in one person's point of view, it's going to be better or worse in another person's point of view. Why not let the parent decide what that child reads instead of the school or the school board? I mean, that's I think that's kind of the thrust that Casey and Donna are making, right? That we want to leave these decisions in the hands of individual parents. That's right. That's right. I couldn't let an hour on book bans or books generally go by without asking about book talk. You know, we've talked about how social media has changed the landscape for book bans, but social media has also changed the landscape for how children, particularly teens, hear about books, think about books, decide they want to read something. You know, like, I think so much, you see so many young adults on BookTok in particular. I think it has really been extraordinary what BookTok has um, has really brought to light for a lot of readers. I mean, the book that I just mentioned, The Fourth Wing, I think that came really the 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 buzz around that book came from book talk uh and it it has become this just this extraordinarily popular book and uh i think it's the same way we used to i don't know we used to hear that we'd read the new york times list and we'd we'd pick something so it's just a it's just a different version a different opportunity that is really bringing books to the attention and i think in a it can be in a very positive way yeah i think um but you also have to be careful um so i hate i don't often so colleen hoover is somebody who's became wildly popular on book talk and her books are i would say they're for adults but a lot of teens get very excited about reading them. I have seen teens in like Barnes and Noble or other bookstores be very excited to get them because it seems like everybody's talking about them. But like, I really do think parents should know what their children are reading, particularly with adult romance books like Colleen Hoover, because it's not the sex that's problematic in certain books. Like I saw a kid once very excitedly asking her dad to get the book It Ends With Us. And if nobody's read that, it's not the sex that bothers me about that book. It's the portrayal of a problematic and abusive relationship as being a goal or as like we can dismiss all the terrible things he's done for the happily ever after. Like that's why I wouldn't want my teen to read that book. Not because of the sex, but because of like, I hate to I kind of feel like she's glorifying an abusive relationship. And that's like, I mean, that book may be for some people. It may be a book that an adult can read. People may have a totally different take on that book than I do. But sometimes I feel like you you probably should know, particularly when it comes to like book talk books, what they are. Well, I uh, I agree with you. And I, I certainly appreciate that there are lots of books out there that are have troubling topics or um, they they really... Sometimes they're just not your cup of tea. They're just not your cup of tea. Uh, and I think we really have to lean on, and some, sometimes it's we have to lean on the fact that that, that child or that teen, uh, that young adult, is able to make that determination for themselves. And, and really, I don't know. You know, yeah. sometimes it's very difficult because I, yeah. I think there are times when you'd say, oh, gosh, I wouldn't, wish they wouldn't have read that. But it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be harmful or detrimental. It can also be a, a realization that there are um, 
you know, there, there are lots of different relationships in the world and some are not a great relationship and some are. Yeah. And I think maybe that kind of circles back to the broader theme of, you know, if my daughters really want to read a book like that, uh, maybe it is a moment for conversation about what problems I had with the book personally, why I thought the relationship was problematic. And we can talk about what healthy relationships look like. That's right. Maybe that's right. That's actually, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And we, um, you know, even our part of our research shows that um, almost like a quarter of all books banned are, are actually about sexual violence and sexual abuse. And um, I think they can be, you know, books that are very hard to read, uncomfortable, challenging to read. And, you know, I, what we also know is that access to that information is crucial to then addressing, you know, what does a healthy relationship look like? What is consent? Um, you know, what, what do you do if you are being sexually assaulted? Um, and just general, you know, improvement on sexual health. So these books, you know, I think I, I agree it's a dance and there's probably, you know, some books that deserve a conversation. 13 Reason Why you brought up earlier is another book that I hear time and time again of like this book I read with my kid because it was and I and we then we talked about it together. So we had that kind of shared learning experience um, around suicide and mental health. And, you know, I think both those both these kind of books speak to, you know, the different ways we can think about addressing topics in books that are uh, challenging or maybe developmentally, you know, a bit more advanced, um, while not, you know, restricting access on these books for all students and all people. Yeah, one of the most difficult books I've read in the last couple of years is My Dark Vanessa. I don't know. If I you... don't know that book. It is about a teen who is in a sexual relationship with a teacher. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it is amazingly well done. But it is incredibly difficult to read. And it's not shown as a good thing. Like, you understand why the 15-year-old thinks she's in love. And I'm doing love in air quotes. But at the same time, as an adult reading it, you want to, like, shake her or throw the book across the room or do something. Uh, And, yeah, that's one of those books, like, if I did share it with my daughters, I would have a conversation about, like, this is how somebody might prey on you. This is why it's wrong. Like, let's have a conversation about why those kinds of relationships aren't actually love. That sounds like a, yeah. a very healthy way to address it. <laughs> it, it is. Really a, does. Oh, it's a book that's like haunted me for the last two years since I've read it. I mean, we often, the Pen America is also a membership organization of authors. So we do hear, you know, we hear a lot from authors in this moment as well around what it means to have their book, you know, mislabeled as obscene or pornographic or harmful to minors. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I think that I think that's quite harmful for any author who writes, you know, for young people to hear um, because they do so often informed by either their own lived experience or the lived experiences of their own kids. You know, it's, it usually comes from a place of real care and concern um, and not to be. You Unfortunately, know, to we're just going to uh, we could talk oh, yeah. about this for hours, but we've got to leave it there. Thank you to Casey Meehan and Donna Siderwig. Thank you guys so much.